everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks for hitting the download button. Nice to have your company. Another great guest on the show this week. I'd have to say this lady's whole body is a brain. We've got a neuroscientist on the line this week, and uh, I've got to say another fascinating discussion on the brain, the body, and how you get your mojo working. If you were new to the show, what do we do? We just find interesting people in all aspects of our world, in and out of work, that have got it going on. They've got their mojo working, and they've got stuff that we can steal to help you put it into your world or your friend's world, our worlds, to help us get our mojo working. And behind the panel driving the show, Robbo, welcome. Good day to you, sir. Good day. How are you going? Whole body's a brain, hey? <laughs> yeah, this lady, honestly, these we have had some super, super intelligent people coming through the show. Mm. This week's no uh, no exception. So mm. we've actually, I got to say, we have come out of the blocks well in 2016. We've got some cracking guests. Well, we started off sleeping. We did start off sleeping, <laughs> and I believe that you've taken it to heart. Uh, and catnapping is now part of your day. Is that right? Catnapping is now part of my day. Yeah, I um. I, you know, I'm a big believer in it, mate. What can, what can I say? Everybody needs a good catnap. But uh, if you need some help with your catnapping, uh, we'll post this in the uh, in the show notes. There is actually, you can actually buy yourself for $45, you can actually buy yourself an emergency nap kit that will help mm. you, that promises to help you catch up on sleep while you're at work or anywhere in particular. It was originally designed for emergency situations in Japan uh, and it comes with uh, an inflatable mattress and a full length sleeping suit that serves as your blanket, according to the blurb. Mm. So um, the, what, they're, they're, what they're obviously selling it on now is, uh, you know, buy yourself one, stash it under the desk and uh, on those late nights at work, fold out your emergency nap kit and catch up on a bit of kip. You know, it's interesting um, you say it comes out of Japan because I remember doing a story for the Espresso a couple of years ago after the big disaster in Japan. Mm. And what came out of that is they built these shipping containers that essentially were remote homes that mm. they could just drop into devastated areas in Japan and they would operate as fully blown housing mm. for those that had lost their homes. So it's interesting how disaster and you know whether it be fire or tsunamis or storms, tornadoes does bring a lot of creativity to to us. You know, like it's mm. it's it's necessity is the mother of all invention, and the Japanese seem to be right on this in terms of innovating once they are facing a problem, which is kind of how all innovation today is coming, is you mm. solve your own problem and you commercialise it, and off you go. So, mm. um, well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the product, mate. Hang on a sec, check this out. What do you reckon? Ten of them. <laughs> <laughs> so ten times twenty minute catback. There's two hundred minutes. There's a good three and a half hours of the day done. Well, that's only uh, a week. That's only ten a in, week. In, in, innovating and creating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I before we jump into the show, and I'm not going to hold us up, but just. Um, Anybody who has been on this journey with us, we're in now, uh, we started our, our second year, full year of the Mojo Radio Show. And it's fair to say that coffee forms the backbone of the show. And I found a new one, and this is a new category. Now, if you want to, if you're starting a new business and you want to enter into an area with a product, the easiest and simplest way to carve your own spot is to create a new category. 
And I found a new category. It's called Nitro Coffee. Nitro and Coffee. It's exactly, yeah, it's exactly what you think it is. Mm. It's nitrogen-infused coffee. Now, it's said to be cold, frothy, yet creamy, and it's on tap, just like a Guinness. And supposedly, now I found this uh, on mindbodygreen.com, mm. and it was in their wellness trends for 2016. So it has health claims that they suggest that it helps blood flow and is also less acidic than traditional brews. Mm. So they're saying it has big health benefits for coffee lovers. Now, no doubt early adopters will want to have a crack at this, but some of the big coffee names that are overseas in the States, hello to our friends in the States and uh, in Europe, Stumptown, who are part of Pete's Coffees and Rise Coffees in New York City, are already on this game. So uh, wonder watch. I wouldn't mind trying it, though. It sounds um, it sounds pretty cool. It does sound very cool, doesn't it? Nitro coffee. So mm. we have, now we've got Bulletproof. And mm. nitro coffees. Mm. Okay. And, 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 and a flat white. And a flat white. <laughs> <laughs> nitro coffee does sound a little gassy, though. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. there, 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 there could be a few backfires with that one. So uh, the jury's out. We will wait for it. No doubt it'll be uh, around the world shortly because it is the latest trend, just like Bulletproof Coffee took yeah. off like bushfires. So yeah. um, there you go. Well, it's interesting too because, uh, you know, we've, we've just had summer nats down in Canberra and, you know, I'm wondering whether, you know, nitro in engines, you know, maybe. Well, nitro in the engine and then the guy who's driving, <laughs> driving the car. He's got, his, he's, got a straight, he's got a pipe straight from the exhaust, straight into his coffee One of those, pot, one of those camel packs. Yeah, exactly. He didn't uh, sleep for the whole summer, Nats. He was away for three days. But, uh, yeah, it's all good. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, Robbo... It's no secret that over the last couple of months you have gained a real interest in the brain, right? How it operates, mm. how to enhance the performance of it. Indeed. And I was introduced to a lady called Sue Langley, who's an expert on neuroscience. And what I found most fascinating about Sue, but it was sort of the brain and neuroscience, but also a topic that you and I have talked about for quite a while now with different guests, which is emotional intelligence and positive psychology. Now, we have had a number of different positive psychologists on the show, mm. but I just like the blend of what Sue is an expert at. And Sue is also going to be speaking in just a couple of weeks' time at the lovely Sylvia Damiano's I4 Live event, which is down on the south coast of New South Wales. And we'll give those details at the back end of the show. So I was quite fascinated to be able to get Sue um, on the line to be a guest of our show. So uh, Sue Langley, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you very much, Gary Rowe. Pleasure to be here. Can we just start with welcoming you to the show by you giving us an idea of what sort of work do you do each day and who would you be doing it for or with? (laughs) It's a good question. So, um, yeah, what we do is the practical application of neuroscience, EI and positive psych. And um, what that really means is one day I might be running a leadership program for one of our corporate clients or it might be another day we're working with a bunch of school principals on bringing well-being into their school um, or another day it might be doing a keynote on the neuroscience of innovation and creativity. Um, So what we tend to do is, as I say, how do you bring the neuroscience research to life for normal people in everyday work and home and so on? 
um, how do you bring uh, well-being and positive psychology into schools and organisations or parents or whatever it happens to be? Um, or how do we teach people how to lead more emotionally intelligently? Um, so everything we do is based on the practical application of those three fields. Well, you've come to the right place because that is exactly what we want to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> what's the emotional intelligent mind about like what I read that in some of the material that you have on your website how does that work the emotionally intelligent mind what's that about well for me I don't think you can take apart emotional intelligence positive psychology and neuroscience because they do go together so if you think about what emotional intelligence is um, some people like to think it's about being more emotional, so therefore women must be better at it. That's often a comment I get um, from the uneducated. <laughs> um, but um, basically, emotional intelligence is simply the intelligent use of emotions. So how we use our emotions intelligently in a day-to-day world. And we all have emotions, human beings from a brain perspective and a well-being perspective and even an anthropological perspective are actually designed to be emotional and social beings. So if we can actually use our emotions more intelligently, um, then that's going to help us day-to-day, whether it's become a better parent, a better leader, um, just a better person to be around, I guess, so we're less likely to have a meltdown. Um, So when it comes to the emotionally intelligent mind, I suppose, it's also about how do we understand the way our brain works and how it's potentially driving us through our emotions and and understanding that we can pretend that we're being as rational and logical as possible, but it's actually the emotions that also play a huge part in our decision-making and our behaviour and our performance every day. If there is a business person who's gone to our show, has downloaded it, is listening to us now and says, well, I'm into that. I know you show people how to put that into a business Give that person one or two steps that they could immediately do to start moving toward bringing emotional intelligence into the workplace. Okay, so there's a few different areas. So if I'm in a leadership role, for instance, getting better at accurately perceiving the emotions in the people around me has got to be beneficial. So if I can learn to read micro-expressions, if I can learn to um, tap into the, the physiological changes in the people in my team when they're experiencing emotions, which is actually relatively easy once you, um, once you learn some of the rules, um, you can actually understand and pick up some of those emotional cues better. And the reason I think that that's important is because it gives you more choices. So if you imagine a scenario, if I'm in a meeting and I'm completely oblivious to the emotional cues, I'm just going to continue down the path that I'm going down. If I can get better at accurately reading those emotional cues, I get more choices of what I do with it. doesn't mean to say I'm necessarily going to call it out there in the meeting, but at least if I've seen it, it gives me more choices. Um, So that's one area I often talk to people about is, are you actually reading the emotional cues of the people around you and the environment accurately? The other thing that I also ask people about is um, then how do you build resilience, which is your emotional management. So if you think about what emotional management is, it's how do I manage my emotions? How do I deal with my emotions in a day-to-day setting? Well, for a lot of leaders, they are actually um, experiencing a lot of stress and a lot of pressure and things like that. So again, what we talk about from a practical perspective is Um, Do you have a smorgasbord of strategies, if you like, in your toolkit that allows you to actually handle a number of emotions 
um, a range of situations. Um, you know, you might have one go-to strategy, but um, if that's not available to you because, you know, maybe going for a run is your go-to strategy when you're angry, well, you can't always do that in the middle of a board meeting. So do you have other strategies in your mm. toolkit to manage yourself and others' emotions? So that's the other area I have to look at with people. What, what's in your toolkit? And how do you increase that range of skills so that you've got a number of strategies for a range of different situations and a range of different emotions? Sue, so what sorts of things would I have in my toolkit? What, have you, what are some of the, the maybe case studies or examples of great tools people have in their kit mm. to be able to deal with emotions? Okay, that's a good question. So um, this is, again, for me, where positive psychology comes in and some of the research around well-being that we know is, is helpful for people. Um, so there's a lot of research at the moment around mindfulness practice and meditation. So um, that, for me, is a proactive strategy, as in if I practice it regularly, I'm less likely to have an emotional meltdown, potentially. Um, it's helping mm. me clear my mind. It's helping me train my mind to be more effective um, and helping me manage my emotions. So that's one thing that can be a proactive strategy if I do every day. Um, same as exercise, you know, we know that well-being is linked to diet and exercise. So again, if I'm looking after myself physically, that's also helping look after my brain. Um, from brain health, we, um, it's suggested we get at least half an hour exercise every day. That's not for your body, that's for your brain too. Um, so again, that's a proactive strategy that means you're probably going to be able to manage your emotions more effectively. Um, but then you've got other things such as gratitude, such as savouring and appreciation. Um, we know those sorts of things are really useful because they're leveraging positive emotions. Um, gratitude is known as an elevating emotion. Um, so, for instance, I write down the three things I'm grateful for every night without fail. Um, and I really stop and I savour and I sort of review those things in my head when I go to sleep at night about what's happened during my day. Um, so we know that's a really useful thing. Um, we talk to people about things like journaling. Um, so some people don't like that as a strategy, but you have to remember it's a smorgasbord, so you find things that work for you. But actually writing down your emotions and getting them out on paper has been shown to be really effective for handling emotions. Um, and then you've got things like um, social connection, random acts of kindness, um, volunteering, supporting others. So when we're in our worst mood we actually want to contract away from people often. And yet one of the things that really helps us from a wellbeing perspective is connecting with people. So sometimes if you've got some really good strategies in your toolkit that allows you to perhaps do something nice for somebody else, that can actually improve how you're feeling. Um, and then we talk to people about environmental type strategies of um, you know, things like to-do lists or getting organized or hobbies and things that change your either physical environment or mental environment. Um, as opposed to television, which does change your mental environment, but perhaps, you know, after five hours of watching it is known to depress the mood and flatten the mood. How do we actually use those strategies that are going to elevate us and sustain us um, over a period of time? So that's a few of the things that we tend to look at on the smorgasbord. Mm. Um, my favourite of all is, of course, Wonder Woman pose. Um, uh, so actually being able to change your physiology. Um, <laughs> we know that... Um, <laughs> Uh, the work Sit around down, our physiology <laughs> really helps around um, actually changing how we feel um, because it changes mm. our cortisol levels, our testosterone, the dopamine that gets produced just simply by how you change your posture. So I have to admit I practice my Wonder Woman pose at least once a day. Mm. Linda Carter. Absolutely. She's <laughs> a, pretty, a pretty good star on that one. And there's, I mean, it's not just Linda Carter. It's the research behind it that's important. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So Robbo has been known to come into the studio in his Captain America jammies and do the Captain <laughs> America pose. Do you think that would have the same... Does that have the same reaction as the Wonder Woman pose, do you think? Or should I have he, should no doubt. We costume? often say you can do your Superman pose if that makes you feel better, but absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sue, are we, are we honest with ourselves about our emotions? Look, I don't think we are, to be perfectly honest. And again, one of the strategies that we know works from a neuroscience perspective is being able to accurately label our emotions. So a wonderful neuroscientist called Matt Lieberman actually found there's a seesaw effect between the activation in your amygdala when you're experiencing a strong negative emotion and your ability to articulate it. So if you can actually articulate to yourself how you feel and accurately identify how you feel, it actually calms your amygdala down like a seesaw effect. Um, But the trouble with that is we aren't often honest with ourselves about how we're actually feeling. So we might go, no, I'm angry, I'm just angry, they did that to me and blah, 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 blah. And we might go down the, yeah, I'm angry path, which is usually externalized. It's usually we're angry at something or someone. Um, but we might not acknowledge that actually we're disappointed, humiliated and embarrassed because we've actually contributed to that situation. And if we're not prepared to acknowledge those sometimes uncomfortable mm. emotions, then it actually makes it really hard to, to deal with them. Um, so again, if you look at... Um, Most of us out there, we don't actually have a very wide emotional vocabulary. You know, we kind of have happy, sad and angry in our toolkit, but, um, you know, not much else. Um, In fact, some of Mm. us only have things like good, not bad, thanks and okay. Um, um, (laughs) The Queenslanders. The Queenslanders. Yeah, yeah, if we can can be a little bit more honest, and again, I think whilst I really do... um, spend a lot of my time talking about positive psychology. Some people, again, get the wrong impression that it's about you've got to pretend to be happy all the time. Um, and it's not. All emotions are valid. All emotions are there for a reason. They're, mm. they're data, they're information. And if we try to pretend we're not feeling them, it actually makes it worse for us. Um, there's a, an activity they call ir- ironic mental processing Um, which is a bit like don't think of a pink elephant. Um, It's a bit like that, Mm. the same for um, emotions, as in the more I try and pretend I'm not something, as in, no, I should be over this by now, I shouldn't still be angry and upset about this and blah, 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 and I pretend I'm not, the more my brain is going to remind me that I am. Whereas actually being able to stop and acknowledge and accept how I feel and sit with it, even if it's uncomfortable, it actually then helps me manage it more effectively. So I think you're absolutely right. We just Mm. need to get better at sitting with the discomfort now and again and say, Mm. look, I'm having an emotion. How interesting. What about things like, um, uh, look, I guess road rage is what I'd put it under, but the example (laughs) I was going to give was um, I was standing, I went to a, a concert with my boys the other week and I was standing in line and this guy just lost the plot about how long he'd been in the queue when he got to the counter. And this poor woman who was serving just copped a, a tirade. And, and mm-hmm. what you were just talking about with anger and stuff made me think it's, it, it's, he probably didn't realize that he was angry or something. You, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, because it's not, a, it's not really something that you, you, you go out to do, is it? Unless you just, there's something mm. wrong with you mentally. How, is that a different type of anger? Is that a different type of reaction or is that similar? to what you were just talking about? Yeah, it's sort of similar. So again, if you think of the rules around emotions, and again, some people don't even know that there are rules around emotions. But if you think about the rule around anger, the rule is something or someone is getting in my way. It's blocking me. It's stopping me, if you like. Mm. So if you imagine him in the queue and there's like 50 people in front of him, if 
that cue doesn't simply go away, that um, feeling of something's blocking me, something's in my way is going to keep growing. Mm. So to start with, we're annoyed and then we get irritated and then we get frustrated and then we get upset and then we get angry and then we get mad and then we get furious Mm. and we kind of keep going down the same path. Now, if the thing gets out of the way, like imagine all those 50 people just stepped out of the way, that anger wouldn't progress and you'd have probably arrived at the counter perfectly fine. Yeah. But what happens is um, we don't notice that we're building up and we don't notice until we, the phrase we often use is the straw that broke the camel's back, mm. where suddenly we lose it. And that's where um, Daniel Goleman coined the phrase amygdala hijack because your amygdala is involved in some of your very strong negative emotions. Mm. So, of course, what happens is if we don't notice the early signs, like we don't notice in that cue we've been getting more and more wound up and more and more frustrated. And sometimes we're actually doing it to ourselves, like in our own head. We go, I can't believe this cue. I can't believe they haven't got more people on the check-in. Why are they not got this? Their counter self is ridiculous. And we're, we're winding ourselves up in our head. And then, of course, we lose the plot and we have this hijacked moment when we actually then sort of lose lose sight, I suppose, or that emotion takes over from us. Mm. Um, the whole idea of emotional management is you actually notice it when you're a 2 out of 10 on the scale, not when you're a 10 out of 10 on the scale. Mm. Um, or maybe you notice when you're a 5 out of 10, you can ratchet it back to a 3 out of 10 um, rather than sort of losing the plot. So mm. again, if you know the rules around emotions, you'll understand why either yourself or the people around you do the things that they do. Um, because emotions will progress if we don't take the trigger out of the way. Um, you know, it's the same with fear. If you're feeling psychologically or, or physically threatened, if that threat doesn't go away, you're going to keep going down the path until you're terrified. Um, but if the thing goes away, then you're fine and you're back to normal again. Mm. So it's really understanding that progression and it's also um, putting good habits in place. So you might find, and again, this is where the brain comes in, if that particular gentleman had only learned strategies around anger of you yell and shout and, you know, whatever you at somebody, that's the only strategy they've learned, then of course that's what their brain is going to process. Mm. Whereas if they've learned strategies that says, okay, I'll just stand here and breathe and I'll, you know, take in the scenery and I'll mindfully pay attention to the fact that, look, the queue is long, but I'm sure they're doing the best that they can and I can get wound up if I like, but the only person that's going to get irritated and, and, you know, have a problem with that is me. So how about I just, you know, mindfully focus on shuffling forward one step at a time and, you know, enjoy whatever's going on around me and the fact that I'm here and I'm grateful. And, you know, if you use all those strategies, then it changes the way your brain is wired and you don't end up having a go at the counter stuff. Mm. So how does one practice that? And I, I think what you're saying, and I, and I have found myself in that situation before, and there are some times where you are saying it to yourself, but going to hell with that, I'm going to nail this guy. <laughs> and you just you just can't control it. How do I how do I can you practice emotions? Like is it something where do I go to get these strategies? Definitely. How do I learn the rules? And number two, how do I practice it in in a real tangible work or life situation? Yeah. That's a, that's a really good question. And and as I say, for me, it's making sure you've got strategies in your toolkit. So if you're prone to road rage, can you practice six deep belly breaths when you're sitting in the car when it happens? And even if you only get to three before you lose the plot, at least it's better than none. Um, <laughs> so, you know, practicing those sorts of things. Um, but you're absolutely right, you can practice it. And one of the things I often teach people is around the physiology of emotions because people forget that whilst your brain is, of course, involved in emotions, it's reading signals from your body. So if you imagine when you're afraid you will get certain things happen to your body. The hairs will stand up on the back of your neck. For me personally, I get prickles Mm. in the back of my hand. Um, My chest contracts. You can't breathe as well. 
Um, so all of those sorts of things. Um, when you get angry, it might be that your fists clench or you get really tense through your neck or your jaw grinds or something. If you know what those signals are, you can actually practice. And what we get people to do is mm. we get them to practice getting into and out of the emotion. Now, some people think that's really odd and they'll go, oh, well, it's all very well, you know, doing it now, but what about when you're in the moment? Well, it's the same as anything. If you don't practice out of the moment, how on earth are you going to be good at it in the moment? Um, same as if you were wanting to play World Cup soccer. If you don't actually practice for several years first, you're not going to get on the pitch in the World Cup final and actually be able to thrive. So what we get people to do, and I had a lady who was doing this beautifully. She, When we first met, she kind of had no clue about you know connecting with her emotions at all. And um, she had a bit of a, a, an exercise she used to do um, just between the times we met. Of every day when she took a dog for a walk, she would pause for five minutes on the beach and she would practice inducing emotions and getting in and out of them. So she'd put herself into fear and then she'd put herself back into calm. She'd put herself into angry and then she'd move herself into happy. Now, it might sound weird because she's only doing it there and then in the moment. It's not like there's a stimuli, but she got really good at understanding those emotional triggers and what was happening in her body so that when she was actually at work and she was feeling anxious or stressed, she started to be able to recognize the signals much earlier before she said or did something that she was going to regret. Wow, she must go home an emotional wreck. <laughs> <laughs> it can be very tiring, but I tell you yeah. what, once you get better at it, it's the same with anything. And you would know this from a brain perspective. If I practice things and make them habitual every day, it changes the way my brain is wired and then it actually makes it far easier to do it. It's gold, Sue. It's absolute gold. Yeah. It's this gold and then their positive psychology hills. I mean, it's really, <laughs> I, it, it's, it's just, it's funny because we talk about practice for Robo coaches uh, and under, what, under 13 rugby team it'll be next year. Indeed. Yep. Yeah. And we talk about, cooking or we talk about leadership. We talk about all these things, we talk about practice, but I've never heard anybody talk about practicing emotions before. I think that's, and I, and I love this notion of if you don't practice out of the moment, then how can you be good in the moment? I think that's gold. Mm. Well, I mean, it, it happens with everything. And actually, kids are really good at it because um, kids are already in touch with their physiology. It's only when we become adults, we become all stiff upper lip and rational and got to think things through and all this sort of stuff that we kind of lose touch with it. And yet, if we can really teach kids, and especially the vocabulary as well. Honestly, it, sometimes I can ask somebody, you know, tell me how you feel right now. And I just get, oh, I'm okay. And then I say, okay, well, tell me more than that. You know, how, how are you feeling right in this moment? Well, you know, I'm busy. Okay, <laughs> give me an emotion here. And of course, we don't we don't teach ourselves, and mm. we haven't been taught as a as a child that there's all these really cool emotion words. And guess what? If you can learn to articulate how you feel, you're already a better better place to actually manage those emotions when they come up. So there's so many things you can practice. Um, and we we give people on our programs, we give them a vocab list, and I know some people actually pin it up on their desk so that they can actually pick the word of how they feel. And we have these little emotion card tins, so little tins of 150 emotion words. It's very powerful, Sue. We had a guest on that Robbo and I have spoken to a number of times uh, called Shelley Whitehurst. And Shelley is in her second battle now with cancer. And what Shelley said, we were at a dinner together and she was one of the keynote speakers and she said that her first round of cancer and even sort of in her recovery, people would say, how are you doing? She said, I'm fine. She said, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. And she, when she got diagnosed with a relapse, she realised that she wasn't fine. So yeah. I said to her, 
how do you get behind that shield of, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm fine, it's all good. How do you get behind yeah. that? She said, ask them how they're feeling. Because yeah, she absolutely. said, once you get behind that, it opens a whole bunch of more, you get behind the shield. It's kind of what you talk mm. about, isn't it? Is really being able to expose the feelings. Yeah, and I think for me, I like to break down the whole fear of emotions that we seem to have sometimes in society. So I always describe emotions as data because that's what they are. They're data, they're information that's trying to tell you something. So I, I say to people, you know, when you're experiencing an emotion, you kind of look down at your body and go, oh, how interesting, I'm having some data. Um, and you don't go, I shouldn't be feeling like this. I, I should be able to handle this. I should be over this. I should be strong. I should be this. And we go, oh, look, I'm having some data. How interesting. And then you tap into what it is and then you're able to deal with it. Um, but while we think of emotions as something to be scared of or something to be nervous about or that we're vulnerable if we experience them, it actually makes it way harder. So I, I totally agree with her. Is, and I'll give you an example because the classic example in the workplace, um, somebody's been off for three days, um, he or she comes back to work and they've been off because their father's just died. And they come back to work and nobody asks them. Um, nobody asks them if they're okay or whatever, and they kind of skirt around the issue and they'll go, oh, welcome back. Um, and we say the reason we don't ask is because we don't want to upset that person. I believe that's a myth. I think the reason we don't ask is because we're frightened that they're going to get upset and then we're going to have to deal with the emotion. And one of the things that I find works beautifully, and I've done this on numerous occasions, and I remember one lady in particular, she'd been back from work approximately two weeks. Her father had died and I'd heard about it. I didn't work in the business, but I was consulting. And I came in, sat down, had a cup of tea with her. And the first thing I did was uh, said, tell me about your dad. What was he like? And she chatted away for about 30 minutes and she said, do you know what? In two weeks, you're the first person that's asked me. And I think that's our problem. We get so concerned about people expressing emotions that actually it makes it worse. Um, So if we can actually deal with the discomfort of emotions ourselves and have strategies in place to handle them, great. If we can actually then help other people do the same, then again, work far more effectively. On that point, Sue, you've talked about our new Prime Minister here in Australia, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, and you said that he vowed recently to be a more emotionally intelligent leader. So based on what you've just said, um, he claimed that emotional intelligence is probably the most important asset for anyone in his line of work. So if you take what you just talked about for the last few moments, talk about the fact that our Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, thinks it's such an important asset. There's a leader listening to the show right now who wants to be a more emotionally intelligent leader. What, mm-hmm. what would they be like? Like what would they be doing on a daily basis? And, and as importantly, I'd like to know what stuff would someone not be doing <laughs> in order to be a more intelligent uh, emotionally intelligent leader. Yeah, look, I think that's a really good thing, Gary, because um, certainly it was something that he mentioned in an interview um, that said, you know, that's one of the key skills that he believed of a leader was to be more emotionally intelligent. Um, and again, if you think of some of the things we've already spoken about, some of the things that we would be doing is we're paying more attention to people from an emotional perspective, not just what the rational is, um, well, not just what the logical is, but what is the emotions behind it. And if I give you an example, again, in so many instances in government, in business or whatever, you, the idea is to make a logical, rational decision and change is made in an organisation and then it fails because the people don't like it. 
So you've got to consider both sides. You've got to make the tough decisions, but you have to understand how people are going to respond. So one of the things that I think emotionally intelligence leader, emotionally intelligent leaders do is to um, think ahead of time about what they're about to do and how it's going to emotionally affect people. And they're putting in steps in advance to go, it's okay, it's okay for someone to be scared or angry or whatever you, but what am I doing to try and um, mitigate the the impact, if you like, mm. or to help support that person going through? So I think that's one thing. Um, the other thing is a certain sense of... Um, Warmth, and, and when you look at how this comes through on emotional intelligence, it's often what they call sensations, as in that empathy, that connection from a physiological often perspective. And that's when I'm with you, I'm with you. I am paying attention to you. I am connected to you. Not I am reading a script and doing what I have to do and ticking a box, but that I actually care about you and I want to be with you. And again, I don't think this makes you soft. I think it makes you stronger because you'll know yourself. If you've been around a really good leader, they are with you when they're with you. Um, when they talk to you, you know that they're listening and they're paying attention. And again, we do exercises on some of our corporate programs. There's a lovely exercise that I, I like to do um, that really taps into the whole um, social brain and the impact that happens when someone is just going through the motions and they're not really connected and paying attention. And it's really interesting to see how we can't articulate ourselves as well, we can't think as clearly, we can't um, even remember things as well when somebody isn't really connected with us. So I think from an emotional intelligence perspective, if you're with somebody, be with them, listen to them, pay attention to them, as opposed to what not to do, which is getting distracted by your mobile phone or taking notes or trying to do your emails while somebody's asking you a question um, and all those sorts of things. But actually be honest, if I'm not available to talk to you, I'm going to look you in the eye and say, look, I'd love to have this conversation. I've got plenty of things on my plate right now. Can you come back at two o'clock? Can we have this conversation later? So this this seems to have a lot of relevance to the home as well for leadership in the home. And I mm. I am quite fascinated by teachers and what they go through. I absolutely love the, the development of children and, you yeah. know, the prince and princess of possibilities that children are. This must be having an effect in the household as well where children are just not getting the, the attention they deserve or divided attention. Is that now playing out in our education system, behaviours? Definitely. Absolutely. So um, <clears throat> one of the things that, um, that I love um, when we do leadership development programs, especially that exercise that I just mentioned, nine times out of ten yeah. someone is going to go, this is changing the way that I'm interacting with my kids because, of course, you get mm. home, you're distracted by 101 different things, you're trying to get dinner, you're trying to sort out, you know, you've got emails left over from the day, you've got lots of other things to organise, your kids are asking you questions and you've got completely divided attention. Um, so a lot of people say to me that they've changed how they interact with their children after doing that exercise. Um, but I think from a school perspective, again, if you look at some of the um, work that's happening around positive education, um, and again, we, we talk about this, um, we've grown great schools, we work with lots of different schools now around building um, a whole school well-being and bringing positive education into a school. And um, again, you can really see some of the changes. So some of the schools I know um, really focus on a strengths-based approach. So they do um, activities in the class, everything from five-year-olds all the way through to uni, where they actually are doing um, real strengths-based work, where they're tapping into um, the children's strengths and using the, the strengths to help them get past a 
a challenge or a weakness or, or something where they're finding difficulty. Um, and so I'll give you a wonderful example. The University of Wollongong, um, we actually trained up um, all of their um, support um, administrators in their residence um, on one of the strengths-based tools. And when they had 553 new students arrive in the residence, every single one of those students went through a strengths assessment and had a personal debrief. And they get supported throughout their year based on their strengths. So that when they're getting to that real sort of challenging time for exams and whatever, and some of them are feeling stressed, they actually have support from their student advisors who can actually um, work with them and, and keep their strengths to mind to help them get through the tricky times rather than them feeling like they're focused on their weaknesses and they're no good and they can't do it and they're feeling overwhelmed. Um, so I've seen some really lovely things really play out in schools. Um, wonderful organisation, again, uh, there's a school up in Queensland um, who've embedded mindfulness. Um, one minute for five-year-olds, and then it pretty much adds a minute up until, you know, when you get sort of into the teenage years. Um, wow. And they've had wonderful things like re reduction in ADHD, antisocial behaviours, bullying, all that reduced by embedding this positive psychology approach around mindfulness. It's pretty cool. So wow. if... If, if in the home a child is not getting mum or dad's full attention, mm -hmm. they're not getting proper engagement from their parents, they're getting mm -hmm. shared attention through a device or something else, how mm -hmm. is that playing out in the mind of a child and what's likely to happen as the child gets older? Look, that, that's an interesting question and something we probably, from a research perspective, don't always know all the answers to as yet, but... Um, again, if I, if I take this exercise that we do with adults, when you um, take your attention away, even an adult talking about something they absolutely know inside out will start to um, uh, stutter, um, they'll give up on their story, um, or they'll start to embellish, as in they'll make stuff up to make it sound more to try and get attention back. Now, that's an adult now, imagine if that's a child. So if you wonder why your child's getting more and more disruptive or they're constantly going, mum, 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 dad, 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 why, why, why? And all this sort of stuff over and over and over again. It may be because they actually haven't had your attention um, and therefore they're playing up and being more annoying in order to get it back. However, I'm not just saying you have to give your attention all the time to your child whenever they want it because that causes equal problems as well as in the child ends up getting spoiled and they get exactly what they want and whatever you... So I think there's the other element of um, parent-child where you're not the child's best friend. Um, you are actually the parent and at times the child will experience some negative emotions because you are going to say, no, this is what's going to happen. Um, so I think there's um, sometimes, again, we're, we're getting into the stage where we're very much protecting our children against feeling uncomfortable emotions. We're trying to make everything comfortable and everything better. And I actually think that has possibilities for later on in life of not building the resilience and, and all of those sorts of things that perhaps we need as a child. Um, and again, uh, one of my colleagues has a lo lovely story she tells about when she was really young, um, being in the garden, she lived in the UK, being in the garden with her father and he had these little, um, uh, like mini greenhouses that you used to put over the top of your seedlings, like little baby ones that would sit over the top of the seedlings. And she remembers being down, you know, in the dirt when she was about five or six and her dad saying, oh, in a few weeks' time, we're actually going to take these off and we're going to expose them to the weather. And she's like, oh, but they'll die. And he said, no, you have to put them in more stressful situations at times so they can grow and adapt. And I, I do worry sometimes that we're 
trying to soften all the blows, if you like, um, for children and make everything fair and everybody's got to have equal and um, the child gets what they want whenever they want it so that they don't experience any negative emotions. Um, I worry that potentially down the track that's um, dropping that need for um, all that potential for growth and resilience that um, that needs to be had when we're a child. So I think that there's mm. sort of twofold. One, it's being okay with the negative emotions and, and two is at least let your child know that when they get home from school and you're going to sit down and have a half-hour conversation, they can't have you all the time, every single minute. Yes. For that half an hour, you're going to be absolutely present quality time with them. It's something we've spoken a lot about on this show, Sue, is is personal grit, which is what you're alluding to. Yes. In your mind, and I'm interested to to hear what you have to say uh, along with the other people who we've spoken to about this, in your mind... Is personal grit something that's not negotiable that we should be instilling in our kids? Is it a must? Look, I, I think it is. I, I think it absolutely is. And for me, that's whatever you want to call it, grit, resilience, adaptability, managing mm. your emotions, all of these sorts of things. Mm. I think it is a must because, um, as I say, if we're making everything comfortable all, all the time, where's my opportunity to, for growth? Where's that, where's that little bit of frost in the air mm. that I have to fight through in order to be able to grow? And it's not that we abandon our kids to fight it by themselves, but we do actually, we're, we're there if they happen to fall over, but we give them a shove um, mm. You know, so that they do actually have to um, stand up and persist. And again, we know from a lot of the research that, um, you know, IQ and having a high, strong intellect or doing really well on exams is not the be all and end all to success in life. Mm. Many of the most successful people have, you know, dropped out of school or all of those sorts of things are not necessarily high IQ, mm. but they've kept going. And every single time they've been knocked down, they've had those resilience strategies, those emotional management strategies to pick themselves back up and keep going and give it a go. And I, it concerns me sometimes when I see, um, you know, different scenarios where we're trying to make everything ideal and perfect mm. and supportive and maybe we're not instilling that growth mindset and that sense of grit and that um, persistence to get up and keep going. Yeah, everybody gets a medal is, um, is getting very boring. <laughs> well, it, it is. As an emotion, anger has always, in my mind, been given a bad rap. But you you seem to have a different perspective on anger, that it can be a force for good in leadership. What? How, how do you mean? What, what's that? Look, it's really interesting. So, yeah, I was on a panel at the Happiness of Causes, Can Anger Be a Force for Good? And I have to admit, it was the most fun panel I've ever been a part of. Um, but um, <laughs> I, I don't believe anger. Ang- again, if we go back to the rule, anger is an emotion, it's data, and it's telling us something. What I choose to do with that anger will then indicate whether it's good or bad. So, um, you know, I, I may feel angry over a social injustice. I may feel angry because something at work has happened and somebody, you know, nicked my best idea and tried to pass it off as their own. You know, it could be anything to do with big world issues or small issues. But the anger is still data and it's telling me something. It's only then what I choose to do with it. So when you think about the force for good, again, I sometimes um, help people understand is if you imagine a scale of zero to ten, If I am on the 8 out of 10 on the anger scale and I'm going to have a conversation with you because you've nicked my idea and that's really not good enough and blah, 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 chances are that conversation is not going to go so well because when I'm angry, my prefrontal cortex isn't probably working as effectively, so I can't articulate myself as well. So unless you've got strong emotional intelligence, chances are our conversation is probably going to destroy our relationship a little. Maybe not completely, but it's probably not going to help it. So being an 8 out of 10 is not appropriate. 
But maybe now and again, ratcheting it back, as in having the skills to pull it back to a three out of 10, but letting you know that I'm serious and that's not appropriate behavior, maybe that's exactly what we need. So it's more about um, use the anger as data, find out what it's telling you, and then think carefully about what you're going to do with that information. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who get very angry about social issues, and I'm sure we can think of many that have happened fairly recently, um, that we're going to get angry about. But getting angry by itself is probably not going to solve the problem because when we're reacting out of anger, our prefrontal cortex isn't working as well, and we sometimes do things that we regret later. Whereas if we can harness that anger and go, okay, what can I learn from this? What's triggering it? What am I going to do with it? And put it together with some of the other things that we want to do, which is, you know, much more about relationships or connecting with people or um, care and compassion and whatever you, how do we put the two together that enables us to get a more positive outcome? And I think anger and compassion go beautifully together. Well, working in these areas, Sue, of uh, neuroscience and positive psychology, emotional intelligence, um, just before we let you go, what with all this knowledge you have, all the research, all the knowledge, the case studies, what are you personally working on right now to improve yourself? Like with all that knowledge, what are some of the things you currently are taking all this and putting, applying it to your own self? Are there particular areas you're working on? Okay, yeah, that's a really good question. And it's funny because I have a, um, a bit of a saying that I, I share with people is treat yourself as a scientific experiment. So the research tells us certain mm. things. Don't just take it on face value. Apply it to yourself. Test it. And I always do. I always test it for about six weeks on myself. So I try different things and I go, oh, do I like that one? Am I keeping it on my smorgasbord of, of tools or am I going, no, that's not, that one's not for me. It didn't really make a difference. Um, so for me personally, some of the things I've tried um, and that I keep, um, I stuck the word smile on my ceiling about probably six or seven years ago to remind me when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I want to do is smile. Now, that's wow. a habit for me now. It's absolutely a habit. Uh, I know some people think I'm weird, but hey. <laughs> that's great. Um, the last thing I do every night is my three gratitudes. And again, I do that every night without fail. So these two of the things I've tried, they absolutely worked, so I've kept them up. As for at the moment, um, because I do a lot of sort of reading and learning about from a brain perspective, and I was very lucky to do a master's in the neuroscience of leadership, um, I've started really exploring the whole thing around habits because most of the thing, if we think about the way our brain works, our limbic brain in particular, it, um, it likes to focus on habits. So if you've got, whether they're effective habits or ineffective habits, you will, it will be way easier to do them. So whether you've got a really effective habit of getting up at, you know, six o'clock and going for a run, um, or whether you've got a less effective habit of getting home and sitting on your sofa and drinking beer in the evening, whatever it is, they're easy to do. So one of the things that I'm focusing on is um, looking at some of my habits to seeing if they're, wor if they're working for me. So I'll give you a couple of mm. examples. So um, really small things. So this is a, one that maybe um, mainly women will relate to. Um, I actually investigated, I put on my eyeshadow before I put on my mascara. Is that an effective habit? Well, I established that it was because otherwise it gets very messy. <laughs> so, so I kept that one. Um, but for instance, um, uh, several months ago, my little alarm clock I used to have next to my bed, probably about a year ago, um, it broke. It, it stopped working. So I started using my phone as an alarm clock. Now, that's turned into a very ineffective habit very quickly in that the last thing I do every night and the first thing I do every morning is um, to look at social media stuff. Um, and that's, I've decided, is a less effective habit. So my husband's just bought me another little alarm clock to replace my old one so that my phone can then be plugged in downstairs. 
Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to do is really look at my habits and say what works for me and what can I adjust. Um, and again, we know from a brain perspective that it's really useful to do that. So for instance, um, to build self-regulation and willpower, one of the things that's been found is do things differently for a period of time. So for instance, I clean my teeth with my, I'm left-handed and I clean my teeth with my right hand for a, um, a couple of weeks every so often because it's been shown to boost um, our, our willpower, if you like, and our ability to regulate when we can actually use a different part of our brain. So again, for me, that's one of the things I'm working on is what are my habits, which ones are working for me, and which ones can I shake up and get curious about now and again. I've been doing that too recently, Gaz. I've been experimenting whether it's mixed nuts or beer nuts that go better with bourbon and coke. <laughs> and well, I've actually decided on the I mean, beer nuts. <laughs> and I, I, I think the experimentation, you, I think you're on that because I've seen you eating Tim Tams with your left hand. Yes, Yes. And not <laughs> just your right yeah, hand right, when exactly. dunking in your <laughs> fish river roast. So I think uh, <laughs> I think your thesis is well underway, my friend. Yeah, I'm on it. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be little. I think you're way ahead of this research. <laughs> you are on it. Love it. So if there was a secret wish that you would send out to our listeners or something you mm-hmm. would immediately like everyone listening to us to do, what would it be? Okay, so my secret wish, I suppose, is that we stop waiting for a magic wand to fix it. Um, a lot of the times um, people want the secret to happiness, the secret to well-being. They want a drug or a pill that's going to automatically you know, make things better. Um, The example that I often give is, um, imagine there's a tree outside your window and six feet down there's $10 million buried. And um, I give you a shovel and say, go dig for it. And if you reach it, you'll, you know, it's all yours. Most people would go and dig for it. But if I said to you, you're only allowed to do one shovel full a day, and it's probably going to take you three years to get there with one shovel full a day, how many people would actually keep that up? Now, the interesting thing is the reason they'll keep it up, if they do, which I would doubt, I know people will be saying they would, but I would doubt, um, but let's imagine they kept it up and they got their $10 million. Why do they even want it? Well, they probably want it because they think um, it's going to make them happy. And that won't be the first thing they'll say, but by the time you ask them a few questions, they want a bigger house, they want to be able to send their kid to a nicer school, they want to be able to do this, this, and this. All of those things will probably, by the time you get to it, mean happiness. To them, that's what they'll assume. And yet I could give you... 50 little exercises to do every day, just like the one shovel full of dirt, but if you kept them up, would absolutely increase your happiness. And yet we don't want to do those because it requires effort. It requires training. It requires um, doing one small thing every day. And I think for me, my, my wish is that people would not try to shortcut the I'm going to be happy because I'm going to win the lottery. I'm going to win the happy. I'm going to be happy because I eat this piece of chocolate cake or I do this or I do it. But actually, the really small things that if you did them every single day, your well-being would absolutely increase. And I could give you 50 of those things, but guarantee you people don't want to do them when it's one a day. Yeah. Robo, do you want to uh, finish with the big question? Well, I don't know whether Sue's up for it. <laughs> I'm a bit worried now. <laughs> So the uh, the big the big question is uh, you, you know you, you're getting ready for a big presentation or you know a, a hectic day in the office you're driving into the office or you're on the bus with the headphones on what's the go to song to get your mojo going. <laughs> 
Oh, that's a really interesting one. And I have to say, for many years, it was... Um, Oh, God, now I can't remember. Um, MC Hammer, Can't Touch This. Oh. <laughs> Do you know what? My, my, ten-year-old son, my 10-year-old son discovered that song on the weekend and it's been blaring in this house since Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly when I was setting up for training or stuff like that and I was in the room on my own, that would always be the thing I would put on and I would do my little dance up and down and things like that to get me set for the day. But Do you have a pair of the yeah. pants? <laughs> no, I don't have the balloon pants. <laughs> but um, I'm sure I still look amusing doing my little dance. But uh, who knows, these days it's all sorts of things, actually. I often put on um, classical. I've got a Mozart for the brain when I'm working in the office. Oh, nice. Um but, uh, and I have to admit, when I'm driving, I do love a bit of Metallica. And... Bit of Metallica? Is that what you said? Yeah. Good for you. I love a bit, love a bit of Metallica in the car. Nice, nice and loud, windows open, singing at the top of my voice. So you're a woman after my own heart. <laughs> yeah, favourite Metallica track? I've been to see Metallica several times. My favourite Metallica track would probably be uh, definitely off the SNM album because I love when they went worked with the um, San Francisco Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I quite like Bad Seed at the moment. That's <sighs> kind of one of mine. Uh, battery, I kind of like. Um, and then there's a couple of the slower ones yeah, like Enter cool. Sandman, a bit of a classic. Oh, <laughs> yes. Gary? Enter Sandman, now that's a track. I officially have a new favourite guest on this program. <laughs> I'll tell you what. It's so, it's just, it's so, what I love is the eclectic nature of neuroscience, post-psychology, emotional intelligence. And Metallica. And same name, Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> now, there, there's a bookend for a show. Oh, goodness me. That is absolute gold. Well, Sue, <laughs> this has been fantastic talking to you. I knew this would be a good discussion because it's an area that Rob and I are very interested in. Where can people find out more about Sue Langley? Um, so go to our website. Um, you can either go to langleygroup.com.au or suelangley.com um, and you will find all sorts of fun things on there to have a look at. I also need to hear more, more about this treadmill desk. That has me intrigued. I love my treadmill desk. Sometimes I don't actually have it going, so it's a standing desk, but uh, like when I'm on the phone like now, it's probably not good to be you know, no. huffing and puffing away and you're wondering what I'm doing. But um, it's, uh, it's useful to keep you active rather than sitting down all day. And they do say sitting is the new um, smoking, so I figure that standing yeah. is better for me. Yeah. I'm no, it's a, there's, a, there's a big vibe now with the biohackers who are doing standing desks, which, you know, the Ikeas and Freedoms yeah. people are on to, but also the, uh, the treadmill desk for those that are a bit more adventurous who uh, want to go down that track. Wow. I love it. Now, before we go... Um, Sylvia Damiano, the, the lovely Sylvia from uh, About My Brain, has put together an event that Sue is speaking at, uh, and, and as well as Moy. Uh, it's called the i for live event. Um, I will put a link to it. Tickets are on sale now. It's at Jasper's Blueberry in New South Wales. 
February 24 to 27. Sue, um, what will you be speaking about there so people can come down and catch you live? Yeah, so I'm going to be speaking about positive psychology. So um, there are various aspects. Uh, we actually run a diploma of positive psychology and wellbeing. So um, you, uh, uh, Sylvia just wanted me to sort of uh, pull together some really key concepts around positive psychology and the practicalities um, to share with people in a two-hour session. Brilliant. So, folks, go to aboutmybrain.com forward slash I, as in I with a little dot, uh, for live, the, the number for live. Check out all the details. Sue, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for your time. We've really enjoyed it. And uh, from Robbo and I, rock on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Robbo. It's been great. Thanks so much, Sue. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. It's going to be a hell of a gig down south with uh, Sylvia's little gig. I tell you what, there's some cracking people speaking about. <laughs> Have you got the whole lineup lined up for the show? Yeah, yeah. Is that what's going on? Pretty much. <laughs> That's what happened. I just rang Sylvia and said, you got this cracking lineup. Uh, can I steal can I it? talk to them? <laughs> yeah. And I'm going, to get, I'm going to get to see them and watch them speak live at the I4 event. It's the 24th to 27th at Jasper's Brush near Berry. Now, Berry's a pretty nice little place. I reckon you get a good good brew down there too. So um, yeah. if you want details, folks, uh, aboutmybrain.com forward slash I, as in iPhone, I4, the number four live. And there's a link in the show notes. So uh, there you go. Now, before we go, a uh, couple of quick things. Uh, I got a lovely Christmas present from Guillaume Pereira. Oh. Remember Guillaume? Yeah, how could I forget? What a lovely guy. Yeah, now, Guillaume was a guest of ours. He's an expert on all things social and web and online. He was a guest of ours way, way back, episode nine, so he was one of the early days. Mm. We've improved a lot since then, folks, if you do, if you do go <laughs> We've back. come a long way. Um, but why I like this book is typical of Guillaume. He's taken a complete spin on team. And the name of the book is There's There's an I in Team. Now, I've heard that before, but what he goes on to explain, in fact, I think Matt Church, who was one of our first ever guests on the show, who is a legend, Matt Church has got a quote on the front of the book, which I think says it all, flips the idea of teamwork on its head by harnessing the power of motivated self-interest. Full stop, genius. What this book is about, and it's a worthy read, particularly if you run a team, is that we think about teamwork as everybody having to work together. Mm. What Guillaume's saying is that things have changed and now it's about getting each individual to work as individual. And if they all do their bits collectively well, then you get your team at the back of it. So rather than focus on I've got a team of three, five, ten or a hundred getting to work together, it's actually focusing on the individual getting them doing what they do and you as a leader being able to draw the best out of each person that collectively leads to a team. It's an interesting read. I won't leave, I'll, I'll, put a, I'll, I'll put a link to Guillaume's website in the show notes for those look at it. The book is called There's an I in Team. It's a good read, an easy read. If you run a team, it's a worthy, worthy read. Mm. I like Guillaume. He's a cool guy. He's very cool. Apart from the fact that um, – he, uh, he supports another cricket team. Uh, <laughs> we won't uh, hold that against him. The Mojo Radio Show. Now, folks, just before we finish the show, some very sad news came to the studio last week for Robbo and I with the passing of the Thin White Duke. David Bowie was a massive influence on us as kids, us as teens growing up, and, of course, us in the music industry and radio and uh it was very, very sad to hear the news that David Bowie, the Thin White Duke, had passed away after an 18-month battle with cancer. And uh, I must say, it's kind of a bit of a shock, really, didn't it? I fell off my chair 
literally. <laughs> I'll be honest. I um, yeah, it it's totally took me took me by surprise. Certainly not something that I'd even heard rumored anywhere. But um, so sad, so tragic. I mean, you know, what a career too. You know, two um, two Brit Music Awards. 27 studio albums, nine live albums, nine UK number one albums, 29 top tens, 45 songs in the US charts, including 17 top tens in the US as well. There's no denying the man's talent, is there? Well, I, I think there's that part of it, but I got a, a post sent to me via Facebook this morning from a neighbour that I had mm. uh, when I was, I think, in year 10. So I might have been 14 or 15. And he posted this really long tribute to David Bowie and the influence he had on his life. Mm, mm. And I remember looking out my bedroom window into Craig Parker's uh, back room window and he had one of the, you know those blue lights used to make posters light up with different colours, you know, the fluoro colours? Oh, yeah. And he would play uh, Ziggy Stardust mm. and he would play Aladdin Sane over and over and over again. He introduced me to it when I was... 14 or 15 years old. Mm. And I remember going to a New Year's Eve party as Aladdin sang. Mm. Um, it just had such a big musical influence on me as a kid growing up and shaping a lot of my teen age, you know, the, the thinking and your values and your style, the clothes you mm -hmm. wore, the baggy trousers. Yep, yep absolutely. You know, it's, um, he, was a, he was, for a lot of people, a cultural icon. Absolutely. He was the, he was the whole reason... He's basically the reason that I found music and got into popular music in the first place. For for many years, I'd listened to, you know, my parents' music as a really young child and sort of the first time I had some money in my pocket and, and wanted and I could actually go out and buy a record. The first album I bought was, it was a David Bowie album and I remember bringing it home and putting it on and I was just entranced by, you know, what this guy was producing and it just made me fall in love with the, with music even more, you know, the theatrics and everything else that went along with it, especially the whole Ziggy Sardust thing. That was, you know, that was just a, a, an amazing accomplishment, wasn't it? You, you can tell the depth of someone's artistic work when you go back and try and pick out a memorable song mm. or a memorable moment. Mm. And having seen Bowie play live a number of times and been a fan of his music since I was a way kid, I'm going back a fair ways now to my, my time in Bris Vegas uh, in year 10 or 11 where I discovered him. But I, I would find it very hard to pick out a favourite track when there is just so much, so much depth with catalogue. Oh, and yeah, I, and, and so much and so varied too, you know, it's so many influences and, and all the rest of it. I, there's no way, there's no way I could give you one track, one David Bowie track that was my penultimate because th th there's just too many, too many. And some of the things we don't think about is like 1969 Space Oddity told the story of astronaut Major Tom mm. was a YouTube phenomenon mm. only a year or two years mm -hmm. ago with that astronaut that did the yeah. song From That's Space. Right. So... You know, there's a career that's influenced so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, he influenced fashion. You know, his photograph recently with his beautiful wife, Iman, at a, at a fashion show in, in Paris, I mm -hmm. think it was, mm -hmm. in 2010. Just, and he's the style god. Yeah. And I remember buying the suits with the baggy trousers and, you know, back when I had hair, trying to do my hair like Bowie and that whole thing. And uh, so it's, it's just a sad loss and I hope we do all take a moment just to reflect on his catalogue, his 
image, the style. I think next week it'd be worthwhile putting together a piece we can put down some of the lessons we can take from David Bowie because if you're going to take lessons of rock, this guy really was a... He was the headmaster. (laughs) He was the headmaster. I mean, he was a trendsetter for so many up-to-date artists, I would suspect, um, in all sorts from, you know, whether it be a painter or a poet or a musician Mm. Uh, so I, I think we should do a little piece on him and just, uh, you know, say goodbye. We could almost do a whole show on him, I reckon, if we really put our minds to it. But, yeah, yeah I think you're right. But um, listen, in the meantime, um, you know, as I've just mentioned, David Bowie has had a huge, huge influence on my life and, and sort of my career, I guess, in terms of radio and all that sort of stuff. So I couldn't help myself this week. I, uh, I spent an hour or two and just bunged together this little quick little tribute. David Bowie was born David Jones on January 8, 1947. Over the next 22 years, he'd spend time as part of the intellectual gay community of London, play and sing in bands that went nowhere, and change his name to Bowie to avoid confusion with Monkey's frontman Davy Jones. In 1968, after a heavy pot-smoking session while watching Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Oddity, Bowie penned what would become one of his most notable works. Space Oddity. The track shot a struggling Bowie to number five on the UK charts, but more importantly, it stamped his name on the critics' lips. Over the next five decades, working under guises such as Ziggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke, while working solo, or in collaboration with some of the biggest names in rock. Bowie set about writing his name into the annals of rock history. His list of credits are too long to list in full, but highlights include a total of 31 albums, 9 UK number ones, and 29 top tens. 45 songs in the US charts, including 17 top tens. Although he never took kindly to awards, the acclaim came thick and fast. Two Brit Awards, 10 Grammys, three MTV Music Awards, and a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award amongst so many others. Above all the success though, was his impact on his audience. An appreciative public whose ages spanned some three generations at his death, we sucked up every note, every chord, and asked for more. His ability to constantly reinvent himself and his music kept us guessing, and we were never disappointed. Then, just a week ago, David Bowie was gone. It leaves me, and I suspect millions around the world, with an instant feeling of loss and emptiness. 
and yet also a wistful joy, a sense of how creative and inspirational just one of us can be. Look up here, I'm in heaven I've got scars that can't be seen His art defined an image of outer space, inner self and a rapidly changing world for a generation finding themselves at a crossroads. So with much respect to a genius, a silent moment of reflection. Ashes to ashes, dust to stardust. Your brilliance inspired us all. Goodbye, Starman. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Commencing countdown engines on. Check ignition and may God's love be with you. Thank you.
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time. <laughs>